Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information you're getting from us. So here goes for today. So in this uh, world of the pandemic, we are all having to um, find our way uh, to um, help ourselves uh, deal with a, a dramatically changing economy and um, help others. And, and I think one of the characteristics of this period is that we do want to not just help ourselves, but to also help others. Not that we don't always, but it's, it's definitely been heightened as a part of our lives at this time. Renata Ro Robinson um, has been involved in a, a, a branch, let's say, of the hospitality industry in a sense, uh, with something she calls her little brown baskets, and she's gonna tell us about that. But she also has um, her other foot in kind of the music world, and she decided she really needed to do something to address the um, dilemma that many musicians are in. Is that fair to say, Renata, is that yeah. a fair intro? Yes, it is. Thank you. Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about Little Brown Baskets. That has been your um, means of livelihood for some time. And I'd like to know how you came to that and, um, uh, you know, exactly what that means um, and, and how you were doing it. Okay. So the Little Brown Basket... Um, was actually what most people would consider a side hustle <laughs> um, because I actually did have a full-time job in um, a national nonprofit for about 15 years. Um, but I always dabbled in gift making and candy making. Um, and actually the Little Brown Basket, it was called something a long time ago, something else, but the business itself actually started out of a high school um, junior achievement deep achievement class called wow. Free Enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, I graduated in 1997. So that was a long time ago. Um, but that project, that class project actually sparked something in me um, that had been dormant for a while um, because as my mom would tell you, I was an entrepreneur or early on from sixth grade. <laughs> um, wow. But that class project um, actually helped me to realize that I could fulfill a need um, and make some money while helping others. And that's always a win-win. <laughs> situation. Um, so the Little Brown Basket actually specializes in what I call gifts of gratitude. Um, I do custom made gift baskets and I also create um, praline party favors. Um, and the, the praline part of the business actually happened on accident. Um, when I first started making the gift baskets, I always wanted to add a little taste of New Orleans. So um, I would just place a little, a little packet of pralines in each basket. And finally someone asked if I was selling them separately. And I said, no, it was just a little lanyard 
And then I had to explain what Lanyette was <laughs> because yeah. they, they weren't from New Orleans. Um, and I was actually encouraged to have that as an offering. Um, and I do, I make the, the pralines in small batches. So I don't really, um, I wasn't really promoting them until someone suggested that I, I start um, selling them at different festivals and things. And I connected with a party planner and a wedding planner and it just took off. So, wow. yeah. So, so, that's, so but the, the little brown basket in and of itself, it's not just pralines, right? No, it's, it's the primarily custom-made gift baskets. Um, I actually so started- what uh, the person who approaches you, what they're kind of broadly interested in. Yeah, so it, it actually starts with an interview. Um, the, the person that's giving the gift tells me a little bit about the recipient. And um, I like to say that the baskets are intuitively made because as I'm hearing about the person, I'm not picturing them, but I can kind of get a feel for their personality, the colors they like, um, just the environment that, that brings them peace. And um, I, I, I don't say this often, but sometimes when I walk into the store to shop for those items, I feel like I'm drawn in certain areas of the stores. And when the recipient gets the basket, just the look on their face is validation to me that I did a good job. So, so do you, you actually hand deliver the baskets also? Yes, I do. Most wow. of, most so of really my gifts. very different from going to your neighborhood uh, or your, your um, you know, average grocery and putting the, and having them put together their, one of their three selected baskets. Right. It's, it's highly <laughs> personalized. It's very interesting. And um, how long have you been doing this? So I've been doing the gift baskets. That's been since high school. Um, but as a as a full time job, it's been two years. Mm -hmm. Two years now. So, so how has the um, COVID uh, situation affected your business? Um, well, I can tell you now that I do non contact delivery. <laughs> yeah. So it's placing the basket on the porch or at the front desk and running away. <laughs> but you still are, you still have a market and you're still selling. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, I've done lots of baskets. Like I said, I, I specialize in gifts of gratitude. I've sent lots of baskets to nurses and doctors um, and even some sympathy baskets. Um, to help families get through some of the, the things that are happening right now. Um, and that's, you know, knowing that I do create the gifts with love and I, I put, I, I intentionally put peace into the basket, whether it's um, finding some items that I know can kind of calm, bring calm, whether it's a specialized tea or some aromatherapy and just, as I'm arranging the basket, it's almost like meditation or prayer. Like I'm putting prayer into the basket to um, to kind of up, uplift spirits. So 
That's that sounds like it's kind of um, it's it, it's definitely taking an entrepreneurial idea to another level in terms of the humanity of it. So it's mm -hmm. it's not just about pulling in dollars. It's definitely about, as you say, you know, putting some peace um, into someone's life. Uh, yeah. And with peace, it, it really implies. Uh, and, and, you know, gratitude, uh, just some, some love, you're putting some love into love, people. Yes. So it, it's a, it's a more emotional trade, you might say, than some. And um, so how does that affect you as a person? Um, I find joy in what I'm doing. Um, I call my workshop my happy place. Um, anyone that works and in, walks into the space immediately feels peace and, I, and that's intentional. Um, it's decorated in a way that brings, brings me peace. And if I'm at a, a place of peace and filled with love, I can impart that into the gifts. Um, so it's just knowing that I'm, I'm helping in my small little way. Um, it, it bring, I'm, gra I'm grateful for this opportunity to help others through, through gifts. So uh, that sounds like a, a pretty tall order in a way. That's kind of what I was implying by doing something that has so much emotional load to it. it it's more than, um, I think anytime emotions are involved in something, it, it definitely, um, adds to the, the demands on your, your human system. So mm -hmm. um, that wasn't enough for you and you had to add <laughs> this music, this music uh, concept that you're gonna explain to me now? Yes, well, it all, it all, it's all come full circle for me. It's not just something that happened out of left field um, like I said earlier, I did um, have a career in nonprofit, um, in the nonprofit world for a little over 15 years. But before that, <laughs> my dream was to be on the business side of music. Um, I went through schooling at the University of New Orleans and received both of my degrees from there. Um, and have always been interested in music business. So I did all of my internships in music. Um, but you know, when there, a job comes knocking at your door with decent pay and really great benefits, you, <laughs> you kind of change your mind about a few things. And that led me on a 15 year detour. Nonprofit work you were doing? I was working with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. So I was national, man worked my way up to national manager of outreach and then also national manager of um, corporate development. But I started as an administrative assistant for the Louisiana chapter before Hurricane Katrina. And I, I like to say that I rode the wave to Atlanta um, where I was offered a national position. And I took it. <laughs> okay, so that was that was again a, a, a pretty demanding um, 
assignment, so to speak. Let's go back to the music now and tell me yes. about um, what exactly it is you are now doing in the music arena. Yes, so I have a business called Love Notes Music Group, which is artist consulting and um, support services for local musicians and event producers. Um, and this means, actually, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. That means what? So there are artists that I'd say feel they're ready for a business manager when all they need is a little support, um, project-based support, whether it's working on their first album or seventh album, um, and they just, they need to figure out where they want their career to go. Um, some people know, I just want to make music, but how are you monetizing um, that gift? Um, are you really sure where you want to be in the next year, two, five years? seven years down the line. Um, some, some artists are just gig to gig. Are you okay with that? Or do you want a strategy around your career? So it's talking through, um, sometimes it's hopes and dreams. What are your goals? Um, and what can we do today, you know, step-by-step step to get there? Um, and like I said, support services, I do offer an a la carte list. <laughs> of services um, and that can be anything from um, being their email and social media support system, um, helping them with press releases, um, just general consultation if they just need to talk through something, if they're trying to make a decision about something, we talk about um, just weighing the, the options and I'm all about following your peace. <laughs> um, that's, that's a common theme throughout everything that I do with clients. Um, and if it's something that, that isn't really bringing your, you peace and it's more, um, it's giving you anxiety or an anxious feeling that might not be the path that you should go right now. Um, so it's just talking through things, project management, um, like I said, press releases, press kits, websites. I just did a website for a client, um, an older gentleman who hasn't really had a, a web presence. Um, there, there's that. And then I'm also helping um, a production company right now with artist relations. Um, when And when you say earlier, like how has the pandemic really changed things, my business has taken off um, since the shutdown. When you say your business, which one are you talking about? Baskets the or, um, or Love, Love Notes Music Group. Uh -huh. um, when everything seemed to shut down, um, there was a group of individuals that knew that the pivot had to happen. And though you could not um, perform in front of crowds in person, um, you could still do live streaming. So I'm helping to co-produce various events around the city, um, live stream events. And it's, it's been a blessing to help um, place musicians in opportunities where they can get paid. Um, and not only for their, you know, they get paid for their performance and there's an opportunity to share their 
their tip jar, their virtual tip jar, so they can get money from those streams. That virtual tip jar thing, I want to zero in on that for a minute because that sounds so iffy to yeah. me, simply. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard enough to get real tips from real people. I'm always shocked when I tip somebody, I'll tip somebody at the window at McDonald's, right? Mm -hmm. I'll pick up my favorite cheeseburger when I'm just desperately hungry. <laughs> and, um, I'll, I'll, um, I'll give the, the gal at the window a tip and she's always like, oh, thank you. Which tells me she's not getting tips which mm. kind of shocks me that people don't realize that when you know, people working in the service industry are not being paid well and, and tips are an important part of their income. So a, a, a virtual a tip jars on, on for virtual um, performances, are music groups actually making some money with that? They are. So the, the tip jars are actually there um whether it's Cash App or Venmo or Zelle, whatever their handle is, the person watching the stream can go onto their app on the phone and type in that artist's um, name or their handle and pay them directly. So it's, I've seen, you know, $150. Um, one of the groups a couple months ago brought in $375 in tips on top of what we were already paying them for a 45 minute set. Now you said we were already paying them. Who's we? So that's the production company. I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. So I'm working with a production company called Moonrise Entertainment and oh, we have we've partnered with um, the city of New Orleans um, for the Embrace the Culture oh. series. Yep. Yeah, so there's there's we, money allocated. We do the artists and view uh, videos okay. on our website and social media through the Embrace the Culture program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's that's been a blessing um, to artists. So we did have, we had a small budget to work with um, but we were able to give, we were able to allocate um, money to, to the artists that performed um, on our series. And we have Go Live, um, NOLA, and we just started um, Hispanola Live from the Jazz Museum. I, 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 I almost want to ask what don't you do? Okay. <laughs> obviously has such a range of things you feel capable of doing. What strikes me is the confidence level you must have in yourself to take on these challenges. Um, it sounds like readily, I, I don't feel like you're having nightmares about what you plan to do. You are kind of more deliberately choosing to do these things. So where does that confidence come from, Renata? Well, I can tell you that, let's see, I don't think I shared this, but in uh, fall of 2018, I was actually laid off from my full-time job. Um, and that's after years of going back and forth. How do I, you know, do I leave to pursue full-time entrepreneurship? But, you know, when you get those incremental adjustments in your income, <laughs> you stay a little longer. 
Um, but that call finally came in, in the fall of 2018. Um, and it was, you know, it was a, a weird place to be in because I wasn't sure, should I be happy? Should I be sad? <laughs> um, but that kind of opened up the opportunity for me to just be present um, with my thoughts and my feelings. And soon after that, my younger brother and, and only sibling um, became severely ill and passed away after a short illness um, at the age of 35. Um, and I, you know, when things like that happen in life, you realize how short life is. And I said, if not now, when, like, when, when do I go for it? Um, and I, I actually have a reminder on my phone every day in my little alarms, my list of alarms, it says make Bud proud. And that's a reminder every day just to give it my all. So that's 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 where the encouragement comes from. Renata, how do you how old are you? I am 40. I'll be 41. I know in you look like about 18 at most. Oh my God. We should all look so useful. So um, how do you see the long term? Um, I mean, it, it looks like you're able to really, again, tap into different sources of um, strength, knowledge, experience, ability to, uh, to, to do and to help others. But mm-hmm. um, do you have like a, a long-term mission or goal um, that you see yourself really sort of tackling on a more sustained level? Or is the mix that you're doing now um, kinds of fits with the way you would like to um, work in, I'd like to call it the, you know, the creative industry sector of the, of the economy? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely want to remain in this, this area of the economy. I do have a long-term goal Um, And I do feel that the little steps I'm taking now will ultimately lead me there. Um, But I do have a goal to work as a music supervisor. Um, I would love the opportunity to listen to songs and have them placed in film or television. Um, that's, That's who does that. So when you see a commercial and there's a catchy song on the car commercial. It's a, it was a music supervisor who placed that song um, that then in turn makes the person that made that song really famous because everyone wants to know what song is playing on that car commercial. <laughs> so you've um, heard of the woman Maya Rudolph, right? Yes. Maya Rudolph, the comedian. <clears throat> Her father, Dick Rudolph, does exactly what you just described really <clears throat> in Los Angeles. I'm going to hook you okay. up. He would be, that would a be awesome. <laughs> and who knows, maybe even a music partner, because he's come into town here more than once looking for talent for certain movies. And mm. um, that's one of the things about that particular um, trade is that you really are dealing internationally because um, people who are sourcing music for um, film, video, and uh, other kinds of productions definitely uh, work internationally. But also, you know, um, I'm sure you are aware that we, our gaming industry in, in this region has taken off in, in Louisiana. 
And so you have a lot of game production companies here. In fact, mm -hmm. on, on Saturday, we just did an event in a little park in the CBD and a couple walked in who were, you know, you know just um, dripping in hip. So I had to ask them, <laughs> who are you and what do you do? And, and the guy was a game producer for a, a company, the name of which I'm, I'm not gonna remember right this second, but um, he does that here. So the game, that's a different kind of music. I, you know, yeah. I know. <laughs> Nonetheless, it, it is, it's the same idea. So um, I'll, I'll, when I uh, get my hands on it and you'll remind me with an email, um, yes. I'll send you his contact information as well. Um, I am, um, you know, of course, terribly impressed by you and what you do. And you have such a, um, a soft, gentle uh, um, affect, you know, style. Mm -hmm that um, it is definitely different from your, you know, your kind of aggressive entrepreneurial pursuits. H how do you balance that kind of your personal um, charm, let's say, with um, you know, aggressive entrepreneurial work? Well, I am, I'm a wife and I'm a mother. And um, I think my family keeps me grounded and it's just, it's knowing that, that I'm an example for my, my daughter, especially I have a 14 year old. Um, and I just, I want her to see joy. I want her to see peace. I want her to know that she can, she can pursue whatever career she wants or multiple at the same time and not feel overwhelmed um, and know that as long as you maintain your own boundaries, um, you can maintain that peace and that balance. So, so one uh, last and important question. New Orleans, uh, for, are you a native of New Orleans? I am born and raised. Okay. What part <laughs> of the city do you live in? I, I live in New Orleans um, and I, I actually grew up in Pontchartrain Park. Oh, okay. I'm in Gentilly, in the Gentilly area. Okay, I suspected so. Um, so you, um, how do you see New Orleans as uh, the arena for what you do and for uh, creative work in general? Well, I actually feel that New Orleans is finally, I mean, even, even after, I guess, post-COVID, just like post-Katrina, like everything has this benchmark now, um, I feel like New Orleans will finally be recognized as the music city that it is and has always been. Um, and I know that with Gnome, the New Orleans music economy push, um, there's you know some really important work going on there. Um, and I know things have kind of slowed down with you know the state of, of the world right now, but I do feel like um, the people that are in creative spaces here will have a voice um, and will be heard. I think the, the artists will be more respected and, and better paid coming out of this um, because people see how important this community is. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to save venues. Um, it's so important to hire local talent um, to appreciate local talent and, and praise them as much as possible here and abroad. 
Well, I, I feel confident that um, you're going to achieve your goal. Um, I have, uh, based on what you've been doing and, and your entrepreneurial instincts and um, uh, determination, you will succeed. And uh, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Celeste Key has a very important for me and for the city job of trying to uh, be a bit of glue for people in the education arena, specifically regarding um, the creative industries, as I call them, or the arts, as I'm sure is a, as a um, focus of uh, Celeste's efforts, who, by the way, has a baby with her, as we um, <laughs> said, uh, uh, and uh, so we, we may see an arm or a head uh, now and then. But Celeste, uh, tell me about um, your position, your organization, and how you got into this. Sure. All right. So I am, my name is Celeste Key. I'm the director of the New Orleans Arts Education Alliance. Um, and my organization, it's, it's an intermediary organization for K-12 arts education in K-12 public arts education in New Orleans. So basically, you know, before um, Katrina and the public schools, there was Arts Connect. There was usually some district level support for the arts, right, in different art forms. After Katrina, the schools moved to a more decentralized charter-based system. And there's you know, no longer a district level arts coordinator, anybody to make sure that schools have the resources they need to um, first of all, understand why arts and music programming is so important and then provide those services to all of their students. Um, and a lot of schools have been filling in those gaps by making you know, um, partnerships with community organizations, but there was kind of no overarching person or body to just keep track of, of um, needs uh, in the school system and make sure that schools were resourced, students were resourced. So that is how my organization came about. Um, we started out uh, back in 2015. It wasn't even uh, an organization, it was a project. It was um, a partnership between the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in DC um, and a group of kind of local arts education business leaders who were seeing uh, some, some need for extra arts education support in the public schools um, post Katrina. So that partnership um, emerged through the Kennedy Center's uh, program called Ensuring the Arts for Any Given Child or just uh, Any Given Child for short. Um, that was a program where the Kennedy Center would partner with um, different cities in the US that had expressed a need for that kind of uh, systems level intermediary strategic planning for arts education to make sure that arts education was happening across their cities. Um, and New Orleans ended up becoming the 17th city uh, in the country to partner with the Kennedy Center on that initiative. Um, and now I think there's like- number one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it took a little while for everybody to kind of get together and put their heads together and realize that there was such a strong um, need for this programming. Sorry, I've got a little Zoom bomber. She, she should be pretty chill. <laughs> yeah she's uh, my calls <laughs> I'm a little more distracted on my calls but they're cuter too so um it's a balance but um yeah so so but we we were we were in the mix and now I think there's about 20 uh 26 cities last I checked that are participating in this uh, national project so you know it's a way mm -hmm. I'm sorry go ahead no go ahead I was just gonna ask you so what has um have been the primary outcomes or deliverables, you, some people say, 
um, of your and other organizations like yours in other cities? In other words, anecdotally, what are some examples of the kind of things that have resulted from your initiatives? Yes. So the, so the Kennedy Center, the outcome of the Kennedy Center partnership was basically through their model, it's a citywide strategic plan for to support arts education. So, you know, they did, uh, they do working group meetings, community meetings to find out what the need areas are and basically help that city put together a strategic plan. And so our, um, the culmination of our strategic plan was that the community was saying there actually was a need for an organization to kind of monitor this work and keep this work going forward. And so creating the New Orleans Arts Education Alliance was the initial deliverable, right? Having a, a central body or person to, to keep track of these services. Um, and through that, uh, some long-term needs um, and deliverables emerged for the city. One was the need for uh, centralized data, right? To find out what kids are getting. There, that wasn't even happening. You know, schools were, were not really reporting what kids were getting. So there's no way to kind of make those bigger policy decisions when you don't even know what the needs are. And so that's been happening lately uh, through a couple of projects. Um, we partnered with the Education Research Alliance to help support a uh, PhD uh, level researcher, Sarah Woodward, who conducted all of this research in the schools and is now presenting it. Um, we provided uh, support on that. And we're also partnering with Chicago on a project called the Art Look Map where we're gonna go move forward, basically mapping all of the arts available to kids, both in and out of school. So mapping what's happening in the community arts organizations. We've already got, I think about 40 organizations on the map, um, sharing publicly what programming they're offering. So parents can find them, schools can find them. And we're, we're now collecting that data from schools. We were slowed down a little bit with the pandemic and the schools closing, but now that they're reopened, we are collecting that data again and should have it to share with the community next spring. Um, other things that, you know, our deliverables are, are arts uh, and music rich policies. So making sure that, uh, that the policies are being created both at the city and state level to protect access to arts and music. Um, one of the big projects I worked on last year was the, uh, the interest and opportunities indicator. I don't wanna to get too deep into the policy piece um, for a general audience, but uh, we made sure that 5% of schools um, school performance scores for public schools were, were based on their enrichment programming. So their arts, music, as well as PE and foreign language um, and career and technical education. The reason we needed to create that policy at the state level um, and have it kind of be in writing is because if schools are not being able to get credit for their enrichment programming, we know that they, those programs tend to disappear. So we've even been getting that, and that 5% just rolled out last year. And we've already heard from schools saying, okay, now that I'm getting credit for this programming, now it's like, uh, you know, there's really a reason to invest in this sort of programming, you know, because in the past, if you're only um, judging schools or if you're only allowing schools to get credit for their math and English scores, then those are the areas where they're going to have to concentrate all of their funding and all of their work. And a lot of the other things we know disappear. So things like that, you know, getting system-wide data in place, getting system-wide policies in place, those are kind of the big deliverables, you know. And then at the smaller scale, obviously, it's just making sure that teachers have access to supplies, that teachers and classrooms are being connected with all of the community organizations and supports that exist out in the community. 
kind of that system level communication that's happening day to day. And I'm doing that work day to day, even as I'm trying to keep track of the bigger laws and policies and data questions um, around the field. And juggling an active daughter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pandemic uh, parenting, you know, working, parenting, my husband's working from home. So we're, so it's just, it's, it's all a mix. Um, but yeah. you know, this work is very, very crucial right now. We know that schools are facing huge budget cuts. Um, we know that when that happens, arts and music programs tend to disappear. Uh, we know that children need arts and music more than ever uh, during their day. So many people during this pandemic have relied on arts and music to, to maintain their mental health. You know, everybody's watching the Netflix, latest Netflix shows, HBO shows, you know, uh, concerts at home, all of this. People really rely on this, on these things to this creativity to get them through. And we know that children really desperately need that in their days as well, since their days have changed so much. So, you know, as, as tough as the work is lately, it's, it's needed now, I think more than ever. How, um, how has COVID affected your um, uh, priorities, activities, your focus, your initiatives? Um, how has um, what you're doing changed as a result of COVID? I mean, you already demonstrated the need has changed because it's, the creativity is needed more, but um, uh, how, has what you, how has what you're doing changed? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, initially like this summer, right? This spring and summer, the school's all closed, right? And as an intermediary organization who works directly with schools, obviously that greatly shifted our short-term mission because the schools weren't open or around. And, and you know, so our, our initial, like one of the first things I did was I pulled together a COVID-19 resource directory to share with um, teachers and principals and homeschooling parents of all of the different kind of arts education virtual resources that were emerging out there. Um, so that they knew kind of where to, even when the schools were closed, where to direct students and, and what programming was available for students. Um, a lot of my, my work became very, and I, I you know, you, you and I were both on a lot of calls together. It became very kind of short-term emergency needs, meeting the needs of our community, right? Um, as, because so many of our arts and music teachers are teaching artists. They're also working artists and working musicians and so many of them had lost income immediately right from the performing schedules uh, being canceled to school gigs being canceled they just needed their immediate needs met so and students had you know immediate emotional and academic needs that needed to be met so a lot of my work this summer was really just being at the table for all of these different emergency calls and emergency meetings and funding meetings to make sure that our arts and education, our arts education community was represented in all of those spaces. Um, and those needs weren't disappearing from the landscape. So now that schools are reopened, we're, I'm shifting to virtual programming. So um, virtual town halls and virtual PDs. Um, I'm doing a program with uh, WLAE TV Think that's something we connected on as well um, to get some local arts education programming on public access TV. We know that about I think still 9,000 children don't have reliable internet access at home um, and so those kids are not they're kind of cut out from a lot of the great virtual programming that's happening so we've had a lot of our wonderful local community organizations give us their virtual programming that they're streaming on the internet and those will then be streamed on public access television. So any child can access arts and music lessons during the day, even so if their schools aren't offering them. 
So in a sense, you're aggregating some of that streaming programming uh, through LAE to get it um, available to a broader uh, audience. Exactly, yeah. And I, I think ideally the programming will um, reach across the state because they are partially owned by the Louisiana Public Broadcasting. So our next step is to meet with them and see if we can get, get, um, get this programming on public access television across the state. Because again, you know, in rural parishes, the internet connection may not be so great, you know, and students, you know, especially if you're in a home with four or five different people on laptops, all trying to learn and work at once. So we want to make sure that any kid can turn on their TV and get arts and music lessons during the day. Um, and this is things that's kind of sad, you know, I don't want to get too political here, but, you know, in Mexico, um, I was just having a conversation with someone who's been a colleague in Mexico who's saying they have learnings on public access television all day, every day, right? That has not been coordinated in the United States. Those, those, and, and I think it's caused our children to suffer. And so even if it's not happening at the federal level, we wanna make sure it's happening at the local and state level. Um, so I hear you speak um, generally of arts and music. And I, I assume by arts, you're talking primarily about visual arts. Of course, you know, my focus is this broader spectrum of the creative industry. So design, architecture, interior design, landscape, uh, media arts, film, video, um, uh, culinary, literary, th this wider spectrum um, that we, you know, I, I had somebody recently ask me, why are we including literary? And I'm thinking, wait, do you live in New Orleans? Do you have any <laughs> idea what has happened here historically and currently yeah. in, in literature and in, 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 uh, the writers that we have, especially our diverse writers are being showcased now more than ever out of New Orleans. Um, so tell me about um, arts and music versus that, that, um, that broader spectrum of the creative industries. Yeah, yeah, that's a good, um, great question. So, you know, arts education traditionally, right, um, in terms of the national curriculum standards includes five uh, general art forms. So visual arts, right, and that includes painting, photography, drawing, all of that. So visual arts, music, uh, dance, theater, and media arts. Um, and we often say arts and music just because music education tends to be its own whole kind of world of education apart from the other art forms, but it's all under the arts umbrella. Of course, um, in this city, it's, so, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, uh, so we got a visual arts, painting, photography, et cetera, music, dance, theater. What was the last one? Um, and media arts. Media. Yeah. Okay. All right, and those so are the traditional art forms in K to 12. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think we've talked a little bit about a program that uh, Cano tried to get started and was not really able to secure the funding that we wanted for it um, because it wasn't, it, I was basically told it would not be recognized by the um, uh, labor commission in the state that uh, determined who got credentialed in the um, uh, startup uh, programs. Um, so we, we were hoping uh, to be able to teach uh, students opportunities in the creative fields um, in general and um, uh, really trying to focus them on understanding their, the careers they could build and the kind of jobs that were out there um, in the creative sector. Um, to what extent is that part of, of um, your programming or is it something that maybe we should talk more about? I mean, I think it's something we should talk more about. It's, it's always been kind of 
something you and I have planned to get together and talk more about. Um, I think it's like, it's a fantastic idea and I, I, you know, whatever support that my organization can provide to help, you know, get those type of programs started. I, I want to, I want to provide support. Um, because I think, you know, in this landscape, it's kind of there's arts cradle to grave, right? People don't just go through the arts in schools. They often enter creative careers as well and join the creative economy. So the more conversations we can get started between the creative economy and the K-12 school system to make sure that what the students are receiving is aligned with what they need to enter these creative careers. I mean, our, our community really desperately needs that. Um, I know I was just talking uh, to... House of Blues Music Forward Foundation. They offer some youth uh, programming and uh, digital uh, music production careers, and they offer some free virtual youth program around that. So there are some programs that kind of are, are starting up and happening that are offering that sorts of uh, support, but we, we do need more, you know, we do need more, so. So we have two uh, curriculums, uh, one on, uh, careers in the creative industries and one on managing a creative business. We should definitely uh, talk for Yeah, about. yeah. <laughs> um, Les, how did you get so focused into this um, area of um, uh, in, into what you're doing in promoting uh, the arts and music in, in education? Um, well, you know, I was one of those kids that needed arts and music and creative expression to do well in school. Um, I really struggled in environments that were uncreative um, <laughs> and learn better through through art, music, visual, all of that, you know, movement than sitting in a, in a desk uh, bubbling, you know, multiple choice test answers. So I had a very personal connection to the arts in my own education and I was very grateful to receive a good education that included arts and music. Where were, um, you, when, hmm? where were you in school? all over the place. We bounced around a lot. I went to school in Canada for a bit. I went to school here for a bit. I went Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got to see That's a lot of neighborhood to neighborhood, but um, internationally. Yeah. I got, I got to see a lot of different, you know, educational wow. contexts and in general found, I always learned better. Um, I ended up becoming an art teacher uh, just because of my passion for the arts. Um, first started teaching here and then lost my job in Katrina and um, taught the art, taught arts education in North Carolina and Dubai in a couple of, you know, again, getting these like comparative experiences of what arts education looks like in different places. And then, you know, when it was time, I, I was, I decided to work on a PhD um, in education policy focused uh, on arts education policy. Um, and, and ended up doing my dissertation research back here because this was a community that I was very connected to from my uh, original teaching and saw that there was a huge um, need to support the arts in post-Katrina schools, you know, that a lot of schools needed that support, needed, needed to know what was in the landscape, needed to know who was there to support them. Um, and yeah, so this job actually, I just was just finishing my PhD when I saw this job and I was like, oh, wow, this is just right up my alley. Um, and it's been really good work to work in a community that I love and have personal, you know, family connections to and just, you know, really 
caring about the schools and the kids here because I saw what happened to the schools after Katrina. I saw what happened to the children here, um, how their education was disrupted. And I think it's up to everyone in this community to work together to make sure that kids are, are getting that high quality education they need to succeed here. What's your view of how uh, COVID is affecting um, kids right now um, uh, in terms of being at home um, and, and not having the experience of working with their um, peer grades, their children, other children in the schools? And, um, and how do you see coming out of this? What, what is the experience that um, all of us, uh, whether it's parents, um, uh, program directors, uh, children, um, what, what do you, how do you, what do you see the outcome of the experiences that we're all having as we emerge from, let's say the crisis phase of, uh, this pandemic, because the pandemic is not exactly something that's going to suddenly go away. Yeah. First, uh, off, I have no idea what the outcome will be. Um, <laughs> like everybody else. Yeah. I'm kind of just swimming in this, like everybody else. Um, you know, I'm hoping that the outcome based, you know, based on the work I do, I'm obviously hoping that the outcome is that these arts and music programs are protected, right? And that as many children, well, all children in this community have access to the arts throughout the pandemic. You know, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for and wishing for and working toward with other people like you in the community who, are, who have these, these same interests in supporting a strong creative uh, landscape. Um, in terms of the impacts, you know, this is very traumatic for children, right? Um, I even see it with my own child, uh, how different her, her childhood has been so far because of this pandemic. Um, you know, they, they, they suddenly one day in March couldn't go back to school, couldn't see their friends, couldn't see their teachers, everything, you know, their, their, their routines were just completely disrupted. Um, and we know that teachers are really struggling right now in ways that they haven't struggled before. Um, and are very, and school leaders, you know, everybody's kind of exhausted trying to manage a lot of stress um, in their own lives while still trying to teach and learn in under circumstances that no one alive has ever had to, to, to work through before. So on this scale. So, you know, we know that the community's hurting. We know that the community, children and teachers need a lot of support right now, um, need a lot of just, kindness, you know, and, and um, I, I personally, not to bang on my drum, but think arts and music are ways that we can come together as a community, you know, share creativity, share hope, be kind to each other, nurture each other, all of those things that we need so much right now, but would have a hard time achieving while we're so isolated from each other. So I, yeah, I, I don't think that I really got to an outcome there. But I think keeping this this connection of arts and music through the, in the community alive throughout whatever happens is, is only going to positively impact the outcome. I kind of want to ask that question again in a, a slightly different way and, and, and um, see what you think. So uh, it's, it's 2021 and we're out of this phase, but the impact of having done so much online work um, of, of working with our families at home, um, um, of, our, of our, our children experiencing how something beyond their control can take control of their lives and change things. Um, who are we when we come out of this? I'm gonna have to sit with that question, Jean. I feel like it's... <laughs> 
It's, it's a really complicated question. I mean, we're all changing in ways that we never anticipated. Um, one thing we know about children is that they're emotionally very resilient. Um, I remember uh, doing some emergency teaching in the Astrodome in Houston after Katrina. And, you know, a lot of the adults, the parents, they were laying on their cots. They were really depressed, withdrawn. You know, the, the weight of what had happened to them was bearing heavy on them. The children were experiencing trauma too, but the children were still playing. You know, they were drawing, they were playing. If they had crayons, they were drawing pictures. Like children are, are, are resilient in many ways. Um, and in many ways, I think we can learn from their creativity um, in the midst of these tragic situations. They still find ways to play. They still find ways to create. Um, and, you know, the more opportunities we can provide for them to do that, the better, you know, they, they gives them a way to express how they're feeling to the world, you know, and to learn from what other people are feeling and express, expressing creatively. Um, I, I really admire <clears throat> your work, what you're doing, and um, wish that I um, could be more active. Um, I kind of have my head down, focusing on trying to get this uh, strategic planning initiative um, accomplished. And it's a very complicated landscape that we're doing it in between what the city is doing, what various active groups are doing, and what we're doing. And so um, hopefully as we plow through this, um, I'll be able to be more active, but I definitely do want to get with you and talk about the careers because the, the curricula, which we, we hired, you know, experienced people to produce uh, are just sitting there. They're available. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would love to connect with you sometime and just look at it and see possible ways it could be adapted. Um, Cause I think the need is still there and it may look different, you know, creative careers may look different in the future, Very. but you know, so the curriculum itself, we may need to think about, you know, how has our curriculum changed due to COVID? But, yeah. you know, you're doing great work in your, in your sphere. And I'm always, you know, happy when our work gets a chance to cross paths. Well, hopefully more in the future. So yeah. let's please stay in touch with us and um, uh, call us when you have a new development that you would like to make sure people know about, um, either through the newsletter or through the radio show. Do you get the newsletters? Because if not, you should sign up for it. And you I do. I'm signed up. <laughs> okay. And I always open them. You always pack them with so much good information. <laughs> well, and, um, you know, we, we have such limited um, funding and staff that um, I do a lot of aggregating, obviously, um, especially mm -hmm. from the New York Times, which is just like this uh, encyclopedia of the world that I treasure enormously and make um, uh, generous use of. But um, people do seem to um, appreciate the selections I make. So mm -hmm. um, useful, but someday I hope to have a little bit more resources and be able to do more original work here at the local level. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that, Jean. <laughs> I'm in a similar boat. We're all trying to do a lot with a little right now, but I really, I really admire and appreciate the work you do. And thank you for, uh, thank you so much for talking today. It's a great conversation. Thank you. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And um, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it. Sign up if you'd like. 
I'm Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.